All right, much to get to here with this fantastic uh, Philly-Toronto game four. But first, I want to remind you that if you ever stopped at a railway crossing and the signals are flashing, just don't cross the tracks. Okay, maybe you don't see the train. Oh, it looks like it's moving really slowly. Or you're thinking you could get across the tracks before the train comes. Just don't do it. In 2018 alone, 270 people were killed at railroad crossing. So if you see the flashing lights, just stop because the trains can't. Well, potentially a franchise saving moment for the Toronto Raptors. A 101-96 win over Philly and Kawhi Leonard was unbelievable. 39 points, 13 of 20 from the field. 5 of 7 from downtown, 14 rebounds, 5 assists, 7 turnovers. And the biggest shot, maybe it'll turn out to be, we'll see what the how this series turns out and how the rest of our season turns out. But in Raptors franchise history, that fadeaway three-pointer with under a minute to go as the shot clock goes expiring over Joel Embiid with the Raptors up one to basically clinch the game. Well, and the mechanics of that shot were really impressive. You, you did a good job of this. We, I was not a part of the, the NBA cast for this, but... He was, it wasn't the normal Kawhi on balance shot, you know, in rhythm. He was on his toes. His heels did not touch the floor. It was late in the shot clock, basically just needed to get it off and did. And, and you brought up Kawhi being five of seven from three, but overall on on shots outside of the paint eight of 12 he was three of five from mid-range as well and not only like you could talk about the counting stats and everything like that the massive difference in Toronto's attack when Kawhi was on the floor and when he was off which made one of the storylines of this game whether Toronto would be able to tread water when he sat for what ended up only being two minutes of the fourth quarter they ended up you know that that two minutes was they were they were I think they were down one at the end of that time and that helped lead lead them through because Philly wasn't getting as many shots and this was a really fascinating game yeah it was and a a lot of big changes for Toronto Pascal Siakam had been doubtful likely it appears that he suffered a bruised calf when trying to trip Joel Embiid and getting a flagrant foul after Joel blocked one of his shots so not the smartest play there uh and he clearly was limited only played 29 minutes instead more of Gasol and Ibaka together Ibaka 32 minutes by far a high in this series and he was way off from three-point range but got a couple of nice hook shots off a high low action had 12 points Gasol 39 minutes for him he did much more in this series as well Van Vliet his role was really minimized Powell's role was really minimized and a lot of those minutes just went to Ibaka instead Van Vliet has been awful in this series he was a negative six in his seven minutes um but they went to that Gasol and Ibaka lineup together with Lowry running some pick and roll to start the second and fourth quarters and they were only negative two during those periods with the Kawhi out and I thought that that uh, as you mentioned was massive um for Philly really a struggle and probably that starts with Tobias Harris and Joel Embiid Joel Embiid was sick that was the the Brett Brown said that during the broadcast and he didn't look quite like himself you know it it was still impressive that Embiid was on the floor for 35 minutes and 14 seconds because they did not look good with him off the floor you know you get into all those issues and Greg Monroe has had a a better playoffs than I expected but he has struggled in that role and they they tried Mike Scott later on but Embiid while he was a force defensively and you know he he definitely brought some positives offensively it wasn't the all-around dominance that we've seen from him through a lot of these playoffs on the offensive end 11 points two of seven from the field doing almost all of his damage from the line but then you brought up Tobias Harris and Harris I thought was one of the big explanations for why Philadelphia lost this game because he had a lot of really good looks 
and just couldn't sink him. I mean, one of it was a huge one of those late in the game, wide open corner three could have cut the margin to one. And those you want him to to those are it's like yeah, you want him to make those shots. You also want him to self create and do a lot of other things. And going two for thirteen from three, not getting to the free throw line at all. Both of those are are big problems for this Philadelphia offense that overall in the game put up just a 104.3 offensive rating yeah it was really the struggle in the first half i thought that sunk them ben simmons also did not particularly impact the game negative 16 in his 38 minutes part of that is because he was matched up a a ton with Kawhi, who was awesome Uh, and i mean Kawhi has just been absolutely unstoppable i mean this through four games this is one of the greatest playoff series that we've ever seen but back to simmons he missed a number of pretty good layups that that were open toronto's defense was a lot better and having two rim protectors out there in Gasol and Ibaka for a lot of the time really helped with that to force Philly to misses around the rim at one point there were only seven out of 20 on shots uh, around the basket ultimately finished 13 out of 27 well Toronto didn't get there much but they were 13 out of 17 when they did and so I thought they were much better contesting at the rim and we saw the Toronto defense that we saw in the first two games and throughout the season that was just missing in game three with just more active hands forcing misses around the rim more pressure and that to me was probably the biggest difference is that they're actually able to stop philly in this game in part because philly couldn't hit the three-pointers late and you know if harris shoots his normal percentage of me we're having a different conversation with Embiid, i mean it's tough right okay he was sick this game he also looked to be struggling a lot more with his knees when he came down from a dunk he landed pretty bad on that left knee it looked like with it kind of more extended than he wanted to he grimaced after that play um it's definitely the landing that people with uh knee tendonitis will tell you it's the landing more than the jumping that really gets you and i mean is this what's normal for him in this series three out of four games where he's done little offensively or can he get back to doing what he did in game three it's a big question i mean now that philly has lost home court advantage which they they had after winning in toronto and in this game jimmy butler picked up a lot of guys i mean i thought he he had a a great offensive game also made some ridiculous ones. I mean, that shot that he hit after Lowry tipped the ball away and he basically just grabbed it, turned and flung it, got a banker in was yeah. was really impressive. But overall, I mean, Butler, 9 of 18 from the field, 3 of 7 from 3, made his free throws. Both these teams, I mean, T- Toronto did meaningfully better and I want to talk about that a little bit at the line. But I thought Butler made a, a really big difference in this one. And there have been a couple games in this series and overall in the playoffs where the narrative, which it seems like is built on a couple of different things about how Tobias Harris is more likely to be a 76er than Jimmy Butler next year that they're on the court issues off the court all that kind of stuff but if they lose Jimmy Butler the Sixers are going to have to replace a dynamic and incredibly high ceiling player when he's engaged and and contributing to this offense in particular yeah and I mean some of the plays that he made when he missed the three-pointer and sprinted in to get his own rebound this wasn't like oh it bounced out to him at 15 feet he missed the three and then like out jumped two guys at the rim to get the rebound i think that set up a, another missed three from harris if i recall correctly um yeah his pick and roll game has been really good you know they've uh taken advantage of gasol reasonably well in pick and roll i thought toronto took advantage of Embiid pretty well in pick and roll as well that's part of why how lowry was able to do more in this game um but I'm yeah ha- I mean, I'm, ha- it- I'm happy you brought up lowry because i thought yeah. one of the other differences that you don't really necessarily see in the box score except a little bit in his in his line i thought lowry attacked earlier in the clock and was more aggressive and it's such a 
an important way to help an offense to just just get things going a little bit earlier. Maybe you don't go get something in that early action, but you still have enough time to pivot to do something else, and it can also keep the team engaged. And I thought Toronto showed more life in transition, even though Pascal Siakam was not himself. Yeah, Siakam missed four corner threes in the first quarter and ended up with a couple of dunks. But I really appreciated what Nurse did to try to get him going and take advantage of that Embiid guarding him a lot. Again, me with Embiid not quite being himself. Siakam, just for whatever reason, not even thinking about taking an above the break three with Embiid just not guarding him out there. But they did some things that really helped. They used him much more as a screener in pick and roll. They had him pot to the corner for those corner threes that, that he wasn't able to make. Maybe that calf issue was causing him some problems taking the three pointer. Um, and he's been good from the corners, less reliable above the break. Uh, they ran a couple of plays where even if Embiid was in the lane, they actually had Lowry screen for him and James Ennis never helped out that's what, how Siakam got one of his two dunks a lot of DHOs to Leonard and Lowry with Embiid not guarding him out there so I thought they did as much as they could really to and Siakam just wasn't able to take advantage of some of the looks that they were getting him early but it seemed like it was uh something that they worked on and had some pretty good ideas on so I, I think Nick Nurse their rumblings oh he's getting out coached he's got to adjust he failed to adjust in game three and I thought he was able to find some things with getting them to push the ball more as well um you know what one of the biggest stats in this game toronto ran on 34 percent of their defensive rebounds philly ran on 12 percent of their defensive rebounds that is basically as slow as you can get and this was a, another super slow paced game zach Lowe noted that other than boston milwaukee three of the four series that are going on right now are played at a pace slower than anyone has played in the regular season part of that i think in the denver portland series is not one of those teams are slow and number two four overtimes will slow your pace down a little bit but i think the fact that guys are playing a lot more minutes makes it more difficult uh, to run and so well, and, really and also effort. Yeah. more engaged defense throughout the game sure. i mean w- a big factor in pace and that's why unpredictable and a few other places are separating out offensive and defensive pace is that there's only so much of it that is exerted by the offense and so i and also teams getting back in transition defense playing with yeah. more energy and wouldn't I think, it surprise me too if there's more offensive rebounding in these playoffs than there was in the regular season that's <laughs> At least in Denver, Portland, there has been. That's for damn well, sure. And uh, and this one, Golden State, Houston, as well. The, those teams have been getting more. At least one of them has been getting more offensive rebounds than usual. Um, this game, this game did not feature a lot of offensive rebounds. But I think you know Toronto did a much better job. Like uh, Nick Nurse said, hey, the number one thing we got to do before any adjustments, and he did make adjustments. Is we just got to play a lot harder. And they did play a lot harder with both the transition game, um, with the number of shots that Philly missed at the rim, especially in the first half, to not give up that many offensive rebounds because those are easy shots to offensive rebound it was impressive as well and Embiid having zero offensive rebounds I think was indicative of the lack of activity that he had in this game well yeah I mean he had zero Jimmy Butler had five he had some yeah. big ones a couple other Sixers I want to talk about briefly Redick hit a hit a few big shots he had one really nice one late and he can be a life preserver if Philly's offense is a little bit flat often he does his damage in transition too but also I, I thought it was another solid not as good game from James Ennis I thought he played pretty well and then I know you got yeah. asked about some defensive mistakes yeah he did it, it, it well he was better in game three to me than he was here but he's still still value add and i mean we talked about how decrepit their bench has been just from a personnel perspective and some of that also ties in you know boban is functionally out of this series other than being an inbound defender monroe makes sense and he's done a better job in these playoffs than i ever expected i mean the parallel with with him and ennis canner both of those guys just exceeding my expectations but he didn't have a great game and philly yeah, negative doesn't, 18 and 11 minutes for 
Navy, and that was why Joel Embiid was plus 17 in a game his team lost by five, despite playing 35 minutes. And eventually they, they did go to Mike Scott, but you can understand why Brett Brown is concerned about that. Monroe brings different strengths. Mike Scott, defensive awareness is not a strength or a neutral. It is a clear negative for him and rim protect. You know, there are a lot of other things that he doesn't bring to the table. And it's, I I harp on this sometimes, but I I think it's really important that going small theoretically. And and with Mike Scott's case, it has the advantage of opening up things for the offense. But if you don't have players who are capable of putting together a cogent, reliable in some ways defense, then you lose a lot of the benefits that you could theoretically gain. And that's why it's so hard to replicate what the Warriors have done in what let's say last year's Rockets did with some of the PJ Tucker at center lineups a couple other uh small notes here the refereeing I thought was pretty inconsistent especially in the fourth quarter just a lot of bad touch fouls those evened out you know Butler got one where it should have been a jump ball with, with Kawhi uh, on a drive to the basket where he got a couple free throws and then Kawhi got touch fouls right back with Embiid trying to slide with him that I thought probably each of those should have gone in favor of the defense um I thought the Raptors did probably get more of the benefit of the doubt early in the game philly wanted fouls on a number of those missed layups that they had in the beginning of the game uh at one point midway through the second quarter toronto had a 61 offensive rating in the half court but had a 200 offensive rating in transition and were able to run on 31 percent of their possessions early on um danny green got two charges in the first quarter and then he got called for a charge and right the next play takes the charge on transition in butler which is a about again i'm not a huge fan of the charge but i mean butler basically went right through his sternum and i it seemed like it was just like the officials have this kind of internal score sheet in their mind of like all right we can't give this guy a third charge in the first half like and he ended up not getting that one i i, I thought he should have um raptors still very little pick and roll at reddick they did it twice and it didn't really work that well the one time they did it they tried to throw it to danny green but danny green didn't really pop to the three-point line he just kind of rolled into space and two-point range and Joel Embiid came over and actually got a steal and then Danny Green fouled him which he's we've noted that he's had all these dumb gambles in the backcourt in this series for no reason uh Fred Van Vliet just cannot get his shot off that was he tried to pull up at one point for a pick and roll jumper and got it blocked immediately it was surprising to see Nick Nurse briefly turn to Patrick McCaw two-time NBA champion Patrick McCaw he didn't look like he has really has a place in this series and that's that's not a huge surprise but sometimes for a, a little short stint you, you could see a coach try that yeah well and that'll tell you i mean we didn't see any of van vliet and lowry together mccall was getting van vliet's minutes just in that stint and he's too little to guard butler they only were able to go at it for a couple of possessions but if if that matchup happens again uh expect butler to just go right through him uh anything else stick out to you here what, what do we expect going forward maybe yeah that, what that's what i was about. that's what i've been kind of thinking about so i think especially if it's due to illness that Embiid will be better though as you said we're at three out of four games where he wasn't the overall you know just like the offensive offensive monster so i expect to see another competitive game in games in game five i think toronto's gonna win it i still i think they can win the series but the case for philadelphia to me is absolutely still there the way that they played in game three they they did well uh, i would say overall in toronto so this is far from a done deal sometimes when a a a superior seed wins game four to tie series at 2-2 you think that's restoring order 
and it's you know it's a six game series maybe a sevener but you think you know where it's going i don't feel that way this time yeah i think they're the raptors are back to being the favorites for sure just based on having two of the next three at home but i i would predict that this is going to go seven and you know, these teams uh one each team has had a blowout each team has had a close win on the other's floor so it's uh about as close as you can be through three games philly certainly could consider maybe changing things up a little bit on leonard although i thought overall they defended pretty well in the fourth quarter leonard hit that crazy shot but that's one that you're okay with him taking it's the one where he's on balance where you know it seems like he's able to just get his shot against anyone um i'm guessing oh that that was something sorry that was something i want to mention philly was five of 21 from the field and three of 14 from three in that fourth quarter like if they hit just even a a couple of shots and and granted I, toronto's defense i thought did a good job making a fair number of those shots harder but they had opportunities to win this game yeah well and one of those threes was that crazy bank yeah from butler that one of the three that they made uh we did one advantage perhaps of the two big alignment is you can throw someone like ibaka on simmons put leonard at the end of the game on jimmy butler to try and take him away i thought leonard when he was on there and he didn't get switched off it did a pretty good job um you know danny green they're probably not gonna ever put him on reddick but he he could guard harris uh, as well so it does give them a little bit different of a look defensively you also might even consider putting siakam on ben simmons um and, and philly to their credit i think they took advantage of gasol or of uh ibaka's help instincts to get some open looks for harris and he just couldn't knock it down I mean, it was funny i was like man tobias harris did nothing in this game and then i went back and, and looked and he led the team in shot attempts for 23 but by, by quite a bit um you know he just doesn't dominate the ball the way some of these other guys do um so you expect that he's going to play better they did not go to any Embiid post-ups the only one i can remember was when he turned and faced on gasol and got a very dubious foul call on him in the fourth quarter uh but Embiid had a stretch where he missed three straight free throws early in the fourth um the backup center is going to be really interesting for philly going forward monroe had been good so far he couldn't he missed a couple of layups in this one i thought he actually protected the rim okay i'm not going to say that that negative 18 was all his fault necessarily uh but certainly putting him in pick and roll trying to guard Kawhi, that's going to be an issue if he has to get out on the floor are they going to go more with mike scott at center that really hurts them defensively uh, and that in those minutes toronto is really going to be able to cook you know it's really the defense of impede that uh, toronto's had major problems with like ibaka got a couple of dunks blocked around the rim by impede for example um can philly get going again on the offensive glass will be another one uh, to me and i think we'll see more from philly of harris trying to move off the ball if he's guarded by Ibaka setting some screens for Harris uh the two-man game between Embiid and Redick when Gasol is guarding Redick they got a, a huge three out of that late uh, when Gasol is just gonna struggle to get out on the floor even in an emergency situation against Redick so uh, I think we'll see even more of that and I mean it, it, but a lot of it comes out is Kawhi Leonard gonna miss a shot at some <laughs> point in the series I mean it's just he's at 70 percent true shooting in the series it's unre- unbelievable and he's it, and it's all self-created it's absolutely incredible and I think a great way to to end this and to, uh, to put a capper on a, a fascinating game four is a stat from John Schumann. Serge Ibaka and Marcus Gasol played a total of 31 minutes together in the regular season. They were plus seven. Raptors were plus seven in those minutes. In the first eight playoff games, they played three minutes.
minutes together. In game four, 23 minutes and 25 seconds, and the Raptors were plus seven in those minutes. And you can get away with that a little bit more when both those guys can shoot. Gasol can pass. They did a really nice job of getting that high-low action um, of Gasol posted up on Jimmy Butler, or I'm sorry, of Ibaka posted up on Jimmy Butler and Tobias Harris. Those guys also are familiar with each other. They both played together on the Spanish national team when Ibaka was playing the four mostly, and Ibaka certainly has played four plenty in his career, and Philly doesn't have the shooting to really stress out Ibaka on the other end necessarily. So I, I think that's an alignment that can work. And just, I mean, Ibaka is a better player than Fred Van Vliet is, you know, at this point, and a better player than Norman Powell. And so whatever you can do to shift minutes in his direction away from those guys, it seems like it, it was pretty smart. And so... Well, and um, also, it's something yeah. else to add in. It's a lot easier to pull that off against the Sixers who have a bunch of guys that, that can't shoot or that you don't that you don't worry about that as much as opposed to certain other opponents that maybe have one guy on the floor at any given time granted i think abaka and gasol can can do a better job than some of their compatriots in those circumstances but having ben simmons on the floor i think makes it makes it more palatable as well because you can provide help you can you can move around a little bit differently yeah this certainly a series that is living up to its billing and we'll see whether milwaukee and boston follow suit in the next game in the eastern conference tomorrow night i will get into denver portland but i want to tell you about liquid iv which hydrates you two to three times faster and more efficiently than water alone with an added bonus of vitamin c b3 b5 b6 and b12 liquid iv is the fastest growing wellness brand you can find them everywhere either online or even uh, at costco and part of the reason i like it is when you're trying to hydrate just not having to drink as much water is nice especially like i'll go up for a quick day trip to ski we get there the night before you're at altitude maybe i had some caffeine i'm a little dehydrated to stay awake on the drive up and then i get up there and i'm gonna go to bed but i don't want to drink a bunch of water and have to wake up a bunch of times at night so liquid iv to drink not as much water and still be hydrated is fantastic it's a great alternative to traditional sugary sports drinks there's no artificial flavors or preservatives it's non-gmo vegan free of gluten dairy and soy if you have any of those dietary preferences or requirements either post-workout or pre-workout it's a great way to stay hydrated it comes in convenient tsa friendly powder packets that are perfect for travel you just dump it into your 8 to 16 ounces of water right now my listeners can get 25 percent off at liquidiv.com using my familiar cap space code at checkout i always do kind of like it a little better when it's the cap space code rather than the url really takes me back and that cap space code is quite powerful it gets you 25 percent off anything that you order on liquid iv's website go again to liquidiv.com and enter that cap space code that's liquidiv.com cap space code don't forget to use that and let them know that you came from us let's get to denver and portland another really fun game between these two teams Uh, slow paced but not a ton of defense in the slightest a 116 112 nuggets victory and that obscures just how much of an offensive game this was because the teams played it so slowly denver 39 percent offensive rebounds portland 34 both were over 40 percent offensive rebounds in the first half but i thought the biggest thing that i took away here was that portland just could not get stops down the end they were scoring well dame lillard really got going in a high pick and roll they're setting the screen really high on the floor he was driving he was finding people but they went with a really offensive lineup since seth curry had played well and harkless was in foul trouble they're playing seth curry at the three and 
just didn't quite have enough defensive firepower to stop this really good Nuggets team and Will Barton struggled overall but made huge shots down the stretch uh, when Portland was forced to double team it was completely ridiculous offensively down the stretch Jamal Murray missed a a three-pointer with three minutes and 48 seconds left in this game that at that time Denver was up 99 to 96 from that point until Will Barton missed a three with 30 seconds to go every single trip down the floor for both teams produced points and most of that was first shot points and most of those were made shots Lillard hit a couple free throws but I was stunned despite the offensive capabilities we talked about how this was going to be a fun popcorn series and all that kind of stuff just partially due to personnel and partially to me due to execution both positive execution from the offense and negative execution from the defense just how incapable these two teams were of stopping each other yeah and whether I thought Ennis Cantor had a few moments defensively but he took a little bit of a step back Zach Collins couldn't get a defensive rebound had a few good verticality plays but he's too light in the shorts to guard in the post and really it seemed like everything that Denver was doing was working well Paul Millsap had another extremely efficient game Jokic had another triple double Jamal Murray had 34 points although some of that was padded a little bit by intentional fouling late in the game but he hit all of his 11 free throws and I said this at the outset of the series that I think Denver when they are going well just has a little bit more than Portland which has Dame they've got CJ but it's going to be attacking off the dribble with those guys it is possible to get the ball out of their hands sometimes finding that third guy for Portland can be difficult so it just seems like Denver has so many holes that they can poke at in this series and especially when they're getting every offensive rebound they're just extremely difficult for Portland to stop right and I thought a key part of that was Jamal Murray Murray who lost his legs a little bit after the second in the second overtime and then beyond in the four overtime thriller on Friday I thought that he really provided a big lift for Denver on a mix of tough shots and easy shots I thought he was one of the more one of the more positive offensive players out there on the floor he was six of 12 on jump shots which was striking because he was four of eight inside the paint but he was sometimes it was Murray getting to his spots he also took a few ridiculous ones the most memorable shot for me that he took in the game was I believe it was his first shot which was the completely ridiculous basically over the backboard shot that he kind of he was fading out to the side on the baseline and he has that capability of just being audacious and and Portland doesn't really have the pieces to counter that now there will be times that that audacity works against Jamal Murray that he takes bad shots or that he throws passes that he probably shouldn't or makes silly mistakes but he also has afternoons like this one where he can carry a part of the load and obviously Nikola Jokic was wonderful again so it wasn't like Murray had to do it all by himself yeah, the other thing is that they're going to need Dame to have a ridiculous game, and he had what ultimately turned out to be a solid game. But if they're going to outscore this Denver team, they need Lillard to be really, really good, and he was only solid. And, and yeah, Portland scored pretty well in this game. You know, I'm not going to put it all on Dame Lillard having not the greatest shooting game. If the team is scoring well, and he's drawing double teams, and he's distributing and starting sequences that lead to getting two on the ball, you know, he's doing his job so to say that he's been shut down in this series is not accurate Portland has scored very well in three of the four games ironically they won the one game in which they didn't score that well but it's just they they have no means to stop Denver on the other end and so he's got to shoot a little bit better from three he also got a 
little bit of a friendly whistle towards the end of the game when, it, when he got to the line more but missed three free throws which ended up being pretty critical and, and had that's a part of why portland was in such chase position and, and his opposite number murray did not miss any, any free throws i wanted to talk about something that i thought was an important stretch of the game and, and a mistake that i was surprised terry stotts made so zach collins had done well in bench heavy units he contested some shots had some verticality but at the 8 13 mark of the fourth quarter denver is up three Millsaps at the free throw line and mike malone brings back in jamal murray and nicole Jokic. terry stotts has a series of starters and most notably damian lillard and alfaruk aminu and and his canner, I would, I'm not sure they were at the ready, but I mean, that for a, a game of this stature may, would have been a reasonable time to bring them in, especially since Jokic and Murray were at the table, like they even showed them on the broadcast. And it took another minute for those guys to get in. Denver expanded the lead a little bit during that time. And, it, and also that was important because it led to, in the time actually after Lillard and Aminu came in, Collins stayed in for an extended period of time. I thought Jokic absolutely beasted him. And yeah. that's when Zach Collins picked up his technical foul. And that one point, you know, that affected many pieces of logic in terms of how the late game mechanics of this worked out. You know, if you're down three versus down four, if you're down two versus down three, those sorts of decisions change dramatically. And Collins just, he, he... can be useful in certain matchups in the series, but he cannot stop Nikola Jokic. And maybe they should have been more aggressive with doubling or, or a series of other things, but it seemed like Stotts was more comfortable having Collins defend Jokic one-on-one than he should have been. Yeah, now, I, I totally understood Collins' beef. He, he probably gets a raw deal from the referees, although he does foul a lot. And on that play, I thought he barely made contact with Jokic, jumped relatively vertically only hit him with his chest I, I didn't think that was a foul but uh, we saw this in the philly game too i mean guys who are just like not even that important to players getting technical fouls it's like you're you're zach collins you're not gonna throw a tantrum and now the referee is gonna be more favorably disposed to you right like if it's the star or it's the coach i still don't think it's a good idea but at least you can come up with some sort of a rationale that you have enough stature that you're gonna influence the referee going forward uh zach collins or james ennis in the first game are, are not going to do that uh we saw evan turner for 12 minutes he somehow was plus four in part just because denver's units without Jokic and without murray i, I think they've really missed murray in because for much of the year they would bring murray back to start the second quarter and play him alongside monte morris and i think they just haven't had enough uh without those two guys together and Jokic out of the game as well but evan turner still i think was a big time negative paul Millsap was guarding him I, I thought Denver actually should have gone to Millsap against Turner in the post more than they did. But then I, Millsap is their best help defender, and Evan Turner is just standing in the dunker spot, but he can't really dunk. And the, every once in a while when he gets it and he's open, he, he doesn't take the shot immediately as well. So really, Harkless only played 17 minutes. I know he was in foul trouble in the second half, but he could have come back for the fourth quarter with four fouls. Aminu, 35 minutes. He could have been extended maybe a, a little bit more as well. I might even say that Myers Leonard would help more than Turner at this point. Rodney Hood only played 24 minutes, although he was playing at the same time as Turner a lot. 
So to me, no reason to play nine guys. Turner just hasn't contributed at all in the playoffs. It, it was a reminder of just how few players with heft this Blazers team has. You know, that the, they don't really have that many guys to turn to yeah. if Paul Millsap is going off because Nikola Jokic is priority one in those minutes. And so that means you, you can you could do a couple different things and maybe you can try to gimmick on one of those two guys. So I, I was I was struck by that in this game. I probably should have been when Alfred Camino couldn't handle Millsap early in this series, but it was another reminder here. Yeah. And I want he's I, done better lately. But, yeah, I, yeah, I would say he's done better, and he had some. Any shots other matchup has killed them, right? Exactly. And so if you only really have one option on a player, if that guy gets in foul trouble, or he's just having a rough night, it, it can swing a lot. But I wanted to mention a stat. I, I'm frustrated with myself that I forgot to do this during when we talked about the first game, but. Kevin Pelton brought this up before Sunday's both of their contests had this characteristic that the infer- the the weaker seeded team was ahead two to one. That means they're hosting game four. And in those series since 1984, if the higher seeded, the superior seeded team wins that game, they win the series 79% of the time. And if the inferior team wins, wins the game and then goes or, or up the, the lower, the lower seeded, yeah. I always with lower and higher, it gets confusing because it's like a one yeah. versus an eight. But if, if, the team that's hosting that game wins then they have a 3-1 lead and they win the series 89% of the time so it can be a great and of course those are overall numbers that doesn't mean just because these series went that way that Portland Portland's going to win this series 80, that they have a, a 79% chance of winning or that Denver has a 79% chance of winning it but I do think that's a good encapsulation of why these games are so important yeah I mean this was my second favorite scenario in a playoff series my favorite scenario in a playoff series is the higher seed down three games to two on the road for a game six but this is my second favorite the higher seed down two games to one uh on the road for a game four Jokic did suffer what appeared to be a calf cramp late but hopefully that's not something that's going to stay with him at all and some of the passes that he threw late in the game that played as the shot clock's expiring the back door to Gary Harris guarded by Seth Curry who by the way was just a little bit too small to stop that play and had zero points in the second half spaced the floor for Lillard to be sure and that was part of why he was successful but you know that was uh, a questionable decision to have him in there I know he was had that 16 in the first half but uh but and Harris just a great job on that play competing to get all the way around in the DHO for the backdoor layup I mean Jokic just had some unbelievable passes Lillard had some unbelievable passes in, in the first half as well but it really seems like Portland has just had no luck slowing down Jokic at all because he's such a good passer you double team him and he just absolutely eats that up and you have to hope at some point uh, that Denver is going to miss shots, uh, but they went 11 to 25 at uh, three point range here. Portland wasted their own 43% three point shooting in this game. One ridiculous stat, and I'll explain the context of this. Denver went 16 of 35 in the restricted area, but they grabbed a ton of those misses. So it doesn't look, it's not as catastrophic. Also, they got to the free throw line 28 times. I think some of those, some of those turned into points on a second chance opportunity as another field goal attempt, some of them as foul shots, but it is pretty remarkable remarkable to, to see a team shoot that poor percentage in the restricted area and still put up a 123 offensive rating they actually had about a league average true shooting but they didn't turn the ball over they got a ton of offensive rebounds so that's how they put up an effective a very effective night i'm not sure that portland can do much about that other than maybe you know, putting more size on the floor with harkless and who knows maybe part of the reason he didn't play was with the, that ankle injury being an issue um but Millsap is just too strong and, and portland and this is we saw this in the first two games with golden state houston not being a running team they tried to push a little bit more in game three and had some success portland is also not a running team and so 
Denver hitting the offensive glass, especially with all the in-close misses that they had, there's not really much of a price to pay in this game. And the pace was very slow. And yet Portland, off a live rebounds, they only ran 16% of the time, which is would be near the, the bottom of the NBA. Denver ran even less, uh, and, and Portland got plenty of their own rebounds as well. And, and then most of Portland's running was for three-pointers that didn't happen to go in uh, on those plays. Another big problem for Portland was turnovers. That really killed them in the third quarter in particular and they stopped turning it over in the fourth when they scored really well but they only scored 14 points in the third that looked like they were in control early in that third quarter and then they had a stretch of nine points and 18 possessions where they had six turnovers during that period and this isn't a denver team that forces a lot of turnovers and denver had seven steals and they averaged a 200 offensive rating went off of turnovers so that was a, a massive killer as well like gary harris had a breakout steal at one point i thought harris by the way his defense continues to be fantastic especially on lillard but also uh, on cj uh, mike malone definitely wishes he had two of them at this point craig really struggled to guard lillard again and i thought justifiably only got 17 minutes i think malone figured rightfully so that if craig's not gonna be able to prevent a straight line drive from dame lillard you might as well just throw barton in there anyway um can you think of anything that denver can do to prop up their bench units i mean if, if it weren't for the time when morris was in the game he was negative five Plumley was negative 16 although part of that was playing alongside of Jokic and Morris was one out of six is there anything they could do to prop those up a little more it might be time to consider reducing or eliminating Morris's role but the problem is now that Barton has a larger role outside of the second unit it's a little bit harder to make that work you want to I think at this point considering how well he's he's done against Lillard you want to tie Harris's minutes to Lillard as closely as you can he's not providing a, as much of an advantage outside of that and so it's, it's it's an easy counter and then Jamal can't play all 40 minutes so maybe you put the ball through Barton in those situations I like having two ball handlers on the floor but also Morris is so small that there there isn't necessarily a good hiding place for him either as flawed as the second unit is and and some of that also gets into you know when Evan Turner's on the floor you could theoretically do some things there I don't I don't worry too much about Evan Turner posting up Morris but you can make better advantage with somebody else like you talked about Millsap because he's such an adept help defender so they could try something more in in that vein but figuring out those rotations maybe it's shifting the guard guards a little bit around maybe using Tory Craig a little bit more there I don't, I don't know exactly what it is but Morris doesn't really have much of a place for me in this series yeah well it's tough because I think Jamal Murray because so much of what they do relies on him sprinting around off the ball off of those DHOs with Jokic the back doors same thing with Harris and then you consider the defensive load of Harris and the fact that Murray just can't guard anyone at all when Seth Curry hit three threes in a row in a minute Murray was guarding him in all three of those plays and just was not good enough on those plays but I don't think you can extend their minutes that much maybe Barton could play more although Malone if he's going to start playing Barton more he played 30 minutes tonight but I think he played only two stints for those 30 minutes so if you're Malone's gonna have to be careful to get him a rest or maybe move him back into the starting lineup um I think just more Millsap in the post is probably where they've got to go maybe you take Morris out and have Barton run the offense a little bit yeah, more maybe you try to put Bar- Barton and Millsap as kind of your engines on the the non-Murray units that could be a way of doing it. and also I think Jamal Murray and, and Jokic have such good chemistry that putting the trying to tie their minutes as Malone has done that makes a lot of sense to me yeah so yeah maybe 
then that's Barton and Barton and Millsap could be a combination could lead you could lead you a little bit there you could run into some problems but at least you'd have a better chance defensively and it's not like that Portland bench heavy unit is dominant like they, sh- they shouldn't be as effective as they've been and yes I mean obviously it was some of those guys Rodney Hood is having a, a nice series and I'm happy for him considering how he struggled in the playoffs in recent vintage so I do think that's one one thing that they can do is just trying to try and reduce that and Morris has had a wonderful season and it's not like Malik Beasley is an amazing defender either let's be clear on that no he he was really bad I thought as Denver was in control in the second quarter and then he lost CJ a bunch of times let him get open for a couple of shots and let Portland get back into the lead during the second quarter he really has struggled defensively I mean again I, I lament the fact that they just have completely given up on Hernan Gomez because maybe what you could say is we'll go with some more size and shooting with her yeah Gomez. that'd be an that'd be an option yeah and then you just make Bart in the point guard and, and don't play Morris um I mean it really is is amazing this is something we should think about more of just traditional backup point guards and how they just don't really seem to be able to succeed in the playoffs when they're going up against more starters they're just not athletic enough or they get taken advantage of defensively and there's kind of a re I mean how good you have to be to succeed as a player who's 6-2 or under this deep in the playoffs I mean you got to be like a Dame or CJ level of player you know or an Eric Bledsoe type of athlete or or I mean it, it's just it's very difficult and a lot of those a lot of the teams this is coincidental too to the fact that those teams a lot of them have like much bigger main creators and so they don't even necessarily have to play a backup point guard at all they can just go with bigger units with the second group well and also but, yeah, think I mean, about seen, think about yeah. how a lot of the good backup point guards the reason they're not starters is because they can't reliably create separation you know if they could if they could get to sure. the hoop against anybody they would be starting and so when the alternative is to play a bigger guy let's say on fred van vliet yeah. he's not going to kill that matchup and so yeah. you have to go in a different direction and also run into problems because almost every player who's bigger than point guard sized who can really run the show those players start too so it creates some real challenges and having quality point guard play capable point guard play for 48 minutes is extremely important it is almost mandatory in the regular season but the thresholds change i mean playoff nba basketball it's not a different sport but it is a very different version of the same sport and i think we've talked in other years about you know being able to create your shot and some of the other ways that playoff basketball is different i think you're right to talk about point guard play as one other way that we can think about this and it's for the teams that are considering themselves in the elite you know the best of the best whether a player can fit that test or or cannot is a big problem so it looks like the series is trending the direction that you and i both predicted you predicted portland in seven i predicted denver in seven and it does look like denver in seven to me seems like the most likely outcome are are you feeling you 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 change you feel differently you think denver denver's impressed you enough to change your opinion yeah i i think that i mean really the games the games in denver did that to an extent and basically that their offense is harder to stop to me than portland's and that's really where the rubber meets the road in this series because neither team has enough horses defensively so yeah there will be games and denver has this unusual propensity for a team with as many good shooters as they do to just have bad nights and so i could see it swinging the other way i mean that game seven against san antonio was closer i would say than it should have been considering their relative talent levels and everything else in that series so i I am not foreclosing. The logic that I used 
is still there. It's just not as strong because to me, Denver's offense has lived up to the billing more than Portland's has, which isn't entirely a surprise. It was just that Portland looked so great in that series against Oklahoma City and they're deep. Yeah, well, I, I got news for you. Oklahoma City isn't very good. At least, yeah, I mean, it, and it happens in the playoffs where you see one series that makes you think about a previous one in a new light. And yeah, I mean, think about with Oklahoma City. I, I was working on an offseason thing with them as well recently. How far away, like they got, they got probably, I, I think you can make an argument depending on how you see Denver, Portland, that they got the most favorable or second most favorable of a lower seeded team. And yet they still got run and they're a repeater tax team and they can't really make many changes for next year no no come on let's let's not spoil their offseason preview here uh we could just count that as their offseason preview <laughs> yeah it, it's not gonna be too extensive is it well this has been an awesome series toronto philly that's been a, an awesome series and if you decide on a whim that you want to go see a game in person either of those series seat geek is the way to do it other than seat geek the ticket industry hasn't changed in a long time some of those big companies that are not that great to deal with they don't really care about making the experience easier for the customer seat geek though has fifty thousand, more than fifty thousand actually five star reviews in the app store they are a ticket company that puts the customer first and the way they do that is they rate each deal on a scale of one to ten and they display them on an interactive seat map so it's going to save you time and money to just pick the best deal in the section that you want to sit you can rely on their algorithms danny used to work in the ticket business he's been very impressed with the way that they grade tickets based on value and it's going to aggregate ticket selling sites together as well i've used SeatGeek many times and i always get a nice deal i usually will take my wife to a bucks game when we're home in the midwest for thanksgiving or at least i'm home she would not be happy if i said the baby but nonetheless she really enjoys her trips to the midwest in part because of SeatGeek. my listeners if you haven't tried SeatGeek yet which uh would be surprising because they've been a sponsor for quite some time now but if you haven't tried them yet you can get 10 bucks off your first SeatGeek purchase for sports comedy concerts anything that has a ticket basically SeatGeek is your first place to go use that cap space code get the ten dollars off your first SeatGeek purchase and don't forget that cap space code to let them know that you came from us all right time to get into the free agent power forwards and the big guy to talk about here the only one i have in the star category no superstars this year is 26 year old tobias harris about as young as you'll get for a guy with his level of accomplishment you know borderline all-star type of player to be an unrestricted free agent and certainly philly you would imagine given the resources that they put in to get him that they will be coming with a very very significant offer and now harris is a little younger would you agree though that it's probably giving him that max contract for five years or even four years at the max starting at 32.7 million dollars this offseason with uh raises coming after that 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 is not going to be a positive value contract i don't think that it would be a positive value contract no i I, his game might age reasonably well it's worth mentioning that tobias harris's true shooting percentage has risen most years in in the recent past i mean so he went from 56 to 57 then stayed at 57 then all the way up to 59 this year interestingly enough he was more efficient as a clipper than as a 76er sample size and and there are a couple other reasons why why that's the case but players like him don't hit the market very often i just worry and we've seen this i talked about it a little bit in the earlier section of this podcast in in the series against the raptors is how scalable he is on a team with real expectations now it's different on the clippers 
numbers when you, making the first round is, is is a successful thing. Like the Sixers want to win a championship, and to me, in that sort of a circumstance, especially because of his limitations on defense. I think of Harris more as like the third or fourth best player on a team that's competing there. Probably fourth, given how great most championship teams are in the modern era. And as a practical matter, unless you have somebody on a rookie scale contract, giving that third or fourth guy a, a 30% max even is a ma- massive, massive commitment because the uh, you have to have the other guys and presume if you're a championship contender, you, you are going to. And that's that's hard. And so maybe there are certain teams where the those monetary thresholds aren't as important. Maybe they can't get as many great free agents like I think there will be offers out there for Tobias Harris just because functionally speaking he might be the best player available for some of these teams but Philadelphia I mean, you wonder, should they hold themselves to a higher standard? But then at the same point, you're like, well, who else could they throw their money at? There aren't that many options this year. Sure, if Kawhi Leonard says, I want to play in Philly, by all means, sign him. But I don't expect that to happen. Yeah, and I mean, as you're going through ranking the free agents, he's a top 10 guy. And oh, lo and behold, there's about 10 teams that have max space this offseason. And he plays a position where offensively he can fit in with just about anyone. He can run some pick and roll, play off the ball, shoot at okay passer defensively as you mentioned not that great of a fit i think it is difficult unless you have an elite rim protector or another really good wing defender next to him to structure a and he can play the the three also but he doesn't really defend well enough to guard the best guy on the other team so you better find someone who can really defend next to him you know i mean that team that they had with the clippers with him and Gallo starting it forward yeah you know that's a nice regular season team pretty difficult to stop but you know there's nothing about Harris that's like oh man we just we can't find an answer for this guy you know he'll kind of have his 23 24 usage and shoot some threes and get some plays in the in the flow of the offense maybe run a pick and roll every now and again but he's not gonna just absolutely take over a game and really make you scheme him and get two players on the ball and be the engine of your offense but like you said number one where else are you spending your money this year number two where else are you spending your money next year when the free agent class is even worse and at least you can expect since he's only 26 that he'll provide solid value throughout the contract and especially since a lot of his value is built on his shooting and i mean there's we don't need to go through him but if philly doesn't give him the offer there's gonna be he'll have five other max offers out of the product thing right and that gets into something I want to talk about before we get into all the potential starters at this position is all of the people in this category that we would have as starters are on competitive teams that do not have adequate replacements for that player should they choose to leave. That often leads to those guys getting overpaid in years, dollars, or both. But also, even though they aren't super inspiring, I could, you know, like Thaddeus Young to me is an easy player. I really like Thaddeus Young. I think he's a wonderful player. But a lot of free agency is about falling in love you know that that can be from the player side that can be from the team side because you're choosing that person or that team over everyone else and presumably you're going to have other competitive offers so i don't know that those guys this free agent group of power forwards inspires that but the sense of urgency can kind of force a can force a relationship as well because you can't lose these guys i mean think about i'll bring go back to thaddeus young the pacers if they lose him and do not replace him they're a substantially different team next year yeah and you know they would have money 
money uh, to do so uh, this next group we can talk about them nikola miritich uh 28 paul Millsap has a team option for 30 million bucks i expect the uh, and especially the better denver plays and if they get to the the west finals i think they probably pick that up that's a, that's where i see that going uh to just in kind of the same thought as when they just made Jokic, they declined Jokic's team option and yeah they ended up having to pay a lot more this year because they did that and gave him pretty much a max contract but they took the conservative approach right and with Millsap, the conservative approach is let's hold on to him we're not going to be a cap space team anyway certainly not enough to get a player as good as what he is going to give us next year i think they could maybe get to like 15 million in room if they decline that team option and maybe there's a thought that oh we decline it with an agreement already in place and we get him for a longer term deal but it really it would shock me if he is not a nugget next year and if he isn't i think it would be pretty bad mismanagement by them so i don't think he's going to really be on the market uh thaddeus young is an interesting one it's at 31 it's really going to be the years for him yeah and great defensive player it should i think he made my all defensive second team this year great anticipation has the ability to switch strong enough to hold up in the post against a lot of guys you know he gave kevin love big problems last year in the playoffs for example but a limited shooter his post scoring is going to wane over the course of that so is it two years is it three years is it gulp four years and what's the money you know it seems like for him something in the 35 to 40 million dollar guaranteed range is my expectation uh of where he ends up and you know see how many years that's over um is that the feeling you have or you think it's lower we may value him more he obviously opted into 13 million last year but it was such a tight market i think it's probably a little bit lower also because young at 31 he's probably not as interesting on a longer term deal to some of these younger teams that have cap space out there yeah and so when you narrow his potential suitors and you could think about i'd be very interested to see like what his fit would be on let's say the utah jazz but i also think he's such a good defender and they're they're really a gobert centric team he would help yeah but his they need more offense can't, just can't shoot it well right either. they need I mean, more offense so like for me if if yeah. i'm if the jazz decide to go away from Derek favors as their starting power forward i would be looking more at nikola miritich i think that's a, a yeah. more interesting wrinkle for them and so if the jazz aren't super interested the nets I think Thaddeus Young would, you know, return there would be a fascinating fit. You know, you could he could help give them more of a defensive yeah. identity, but they've really valued shooting. He's a little bit older than the rest of their group. He might not age particularly well as everybody else is getting into their primes. So I could I could imagine teams like that just not being as interested. And then once you really start working it down, then there aren't as many suitors that really make sense. So I I, I see him ending up back in in Indiana. But you brought this up. I, I with you didn't bring this up with Millsap, but you easily could have there are parallels between denver and indiana that i could imagine them kind of taking care of their guys and i could imagine both thaddeus young and paul Millsap getting contracts that we think are overpays that they that the player did not have the leverage to demand alfred Camino, another really interesting one in portland and aminu has a lot of versatility he can shoot the three well enough uh and can defend either forward position against most guys and to have just some two-way ability at that position especially when you know let's say you 
you have a, a Boyan Bogdanovich type of small forward who isn't going to be able to guard the best threes on the other team. He, Aminu is not like a dead bang stopper, but he holds up there. And you can't say that for a lot of guys, especially at the power forward position. I mean, you could look at him as a three potentially as well. He's 28. I mean, that was a great, great contract that Neil O'Shea signed him to. He was one of the first guys to sign in 2015 free agency. But the Blazers have some tax concerns next year, to be sure. Maybe they do have guys they can move or stretch in Turner and Myers Leonard, you know, who are make a combined 30 million bucks. And let's just say, don't give them quite that level of production. And maybe they could bring it back. I, you know, I, I think Aminu, you know, maybe even could get in the 45 to $50 million guaranteed range, given his age and the fact that he's just a solid starter on a playoff team. Those guys are, are not necessarily available. And, you know, sure, his shooting always can wane. You know, I mean, that's the that's question with a lot of these guys. But, you know, he's he's a good, solid player. And you would imagine that Portland, especially where, you know, he was given a starting role basically right away and blossomed and they really can't take a step back by losing him. They have no way to replace him. I don't know that I see a cap space team giving him that type of a deal. So maybe that will reduce his leverage some and he'll be looking at mid-level type of offers uh, from other teams. You know, he doesn't make sense for your uh, a lot of these younger cap space teams, like you were saying, especially if the those teams are not trying to take the next step necessarily. I do think, you know, he'd be a nice fit on like a Dallas uh, as they're trying to, to move into playoff contention. Uh, I was again. about to bring them up. I think that the yeah. fit of him with Porzingis would be would be really fun. They could go in some yeah. some good directions with him. And I think Aminu is a meaningfully better fit if they wanted to go there than, than Thaddeus Young, partially due to age and just the offensive fit. The rotation guys are fascinating. Julius Randle has a player option. You have to imagine with just the raw points and rebounds that he put up this year that he's going to opt out of that. That's a, That player option is for a little over $9 million. Yeah, Randle, great example of a player who I'm confident will get overpaid and I have absolutely no idea who's going to do it. It's just a player that I value less than other people do. Yeah, I mean, he's, I don't see him as a starter despite the numbers that he put up because he's just so bad defensively. And then he also has, not only is he bad defensively, but he just is such a tough fit defensively as well. I mean, you really need like an Anthony Davis type next to him, or you got to be committed like the Lakers were two years ago to just being able to switch everything. So, you know, he's really kind of more of a sixth man type of guy. Although as a big, we're seeing more bigs that kind of fall into that role now. So it'll be interesting. I mean, I could see him, you know, New Orleans didn't trade him. So you could see him maybe being back there. We'll see what they get back from AD. They could have space to go beyond just the 120% for him. I mean, we could maybe even see, depending on what his market is, you know, maybe he opts out and then they use those non-bird rights, 120% of what he made last year to ink a long-term deal. But it's hard for me to see him getting to, you know, 15 million a year over a lot of years. You know, that's, he's just too limited. Um, You know, and maybe a a team that's kind of towards the bottom, we'll see him as a young player. They can develop and be seduced by the points and rebounds. But I I think the league has a decent idea of where he is. Uh, Another interesting one, Rudy Gay at 32 with the Spurs. Maybe he ends up going back there. Spurs cap space is limited this offseason. So he would be a guy that if they don't pay him, they wouldn't really necessarily be able to replace him. Uh, And they can pay him up to 175% of the 10 million that he made this year. So maybe it could be something like a a two-year deal. Spurs also generally kind of take care of their own, you know, a two-year deal at like, you know, 11 million a year. Maybe you could see something like that happening for Rudy Gay in San Antonio. Marcus Morris is, has had a really good year shooting the ball. I think he's slipped a little bit defensively, but still has the size to guard some of the more power wings. He's a little slower out in the perimeter, but you know, he's had success guarding guys like LeBron in the past. So someone who can shoot, 
shoot and uh, guard his position like that is going to be a valuable player i think a lot of it is how much your team's going to buy into the way he shot the ball this year from three one his timing is going to be a real challenge because i'm guessing boston in many circumstances would like to have him back but they're looking at some pretty big fish as well and not to say that anthony davis is mutually exclusive in in many ways actually getting anthony davis because of what they would have to give up probably opens the door for marcus morris to come back but in boston's case i expect that their ducks will be in a row by july 1st that they'll know one way or the other on ad and they'll know on Kyrie relatively quickly so yeah and they're not going to do anything that requires cap space so right so they wouldn't have to give up his cap hole they could always resign him i think it's just a question of the price and and he was extension eligible you know unclear whether those talks uh, were serious at all or or progressed very far but uh you know i think there probably would would be you know morris is a little volatile i'm not sure that he's like you know the greatest influence in a locker room that's kind of had some uh tumult but nonetheless he's a good player and they wouldn't another guy that they wouldn't really have a way to replace you know they're going to be likely looking at uh just the mini mid level as a way to replace him and i expect him to get more than that um some other names that are interesting taj gibson at 34 still played power forward mostly i think he would be a solid backup center for a lot of teams a good culture guy maybe minnesota will be interested in having him back although they do have some constraints as far as the tax they look like they'll be eh, about 15 million below the tax going into the summer but they're going to want to re-sign Derek rose as well who they'll have a early bird rights on tyus jones a restricted free agent but uh and they do have gorgie jang under contract as well as more of a backup centers and i'm not sure i mean gerson rosas coming from that houston system he's not gonna be too interested in playing someone like taj at the four who's down a three-point shooter i think he's, he's more of a believer in that and, and maybe he'll try to turn that job over to uh, dario Saric full-time so maybe we'll see gibson on the market i see him as more of a backup center at this point now but since he played power forward last year that's where i had him um any of these other guys kind of stand out to you I and mean, we can go through the list quickly but it, there's no one else on here that i i look at it as that sexy yeah i i'd say there's a, a step down after them but in terms of choice jared dudley is fascinating to me i've been so happy to see him after those years in phoenix and remember how crazy it was that phoenix basically partially salary dumped him for Darrell arthur who is meaningfully worse and was basically you know gone from the team immediately but to see jared dudley on a team this good was really exciting and i i don't know what offers are going to be on the table for him but for selfish purposes it would make me happy if he was on a good team again jermichael green i think has made himself uh some money he's someone who i think a team might consider bringing in as a starter he's been much more aggressive shooting the three with the clippers a lot depends of course on the clippers cap space aspirations you know if they just get Kawhi leonard maybe bringing back jermichael green is something that that they might want to consider um you know his cap hold is not too big it's about 10 million and he's making about seven or eight million i think he he could get something again uh in that range uh, as you know maybe a slightly poor man's off rukuminu type of player um michael kid gilchrist is going to pick up his player option marvin williams is going to pick up his player option almost certainly hey you never no no you know uh and markeith morris really struggled this year had that neck issue just was not the same player that was a quality starter for a lot of his time in washington only 29 though so but i think he's going to be in a situation where you know it's going to be a three or four million dollar two-year deal prove it type of thing um you know three or four million dollars per year i should say with two years max doesn't seem like it's much be on there wilson chandler seems like he's kind of trending just towards you know ninth man type of money that 
that that similar sort of area uh especially at, at 32 is anybody more disappointed in ernie grunfeld getting fired i was gonna say than jabari parker i guess maybe trevor risa is but i i kind of yeah. it looked like there were some signs i mean jabari averaged 15 and 7 for the wizards in 25 games it kind of looked like it was good and they could still retain him even if they declined the option which they damn well better because jabari parker is not a 20 million dollar player no he isn't using bird rights when a guy makes a lot of money non-bird rights actually are pretty advantageous so washington could bring him back without having to really dip into much and they should be able to avoid the tax but i have massive trouble calibrating what his market could be should be and will be i mean i think it's something in the you know maybe part of an exception five million a year for a couple of years just score off the bench type of player i think he played much better in washington looked better athletically still terrible on defense but he was an efficient scorer off the bench and there's a lot of i mean a team like orlando could really use someone like that right i mean just someone to create offense on that second unit there are a lot of teams that are very limited it's so funny going through this now because we've been in this playoff crucible and doing the nba cast where we just every mistake and every failing just pops out so much on the screen and oh my god you can't even play fred van fleet like he's unplayable and like fred van fleet is you know probably a top 35 point guard in the nba and he can't play in this series right it's just and now we're going back and talking about some of these guys and you think about all their weakness they're like yeah well you know there's uh you got 15 roster spots uh, across 30 teams and you gotta fill them so uh yeah i mean there are plenty of teams that need some scoring off the bench and i think it would be interested in him you just you got to have the right personnel defensively around him and the right culture um yeah jeff green had a nice year in washington word is they won't really have much in terms of bird rights to retain him uh but the the dc native uh, flourished there for a time tailed off a little bit towards the end of the year but word is he may want to stay there as well a lot of people apparently want to stay in washington uh ariza green um anthony tolliver is probably closer to a fringe guy you know he didn't play as much got some more run under ryan saunders even played some at the three due to his shooting ability but still a a guy who competes great locker room guy acting in the players association and you know has really deep range on his three balls so even at 34 i think he'll get some looks but you know probably not quite at the level uh, of that one year deal for a little over five million that he got in minnesota last year yeah i would say that's fair and tolliver could be getting down to the point where he chooses to take a little bit less to be on a much better team like i could see him theoretically as a a, min- a minimum guy on a team like the warriors where it's like would you rather take three and a half somewhere or take two five or i don't know exactly what the yeah that, that would be about it I think, yeah for, so for the veterans minimum could see him point. do that with any number of teams because remember that in this in this league year where the, a lot of the top end players are probably going to sign with cap space these elite teams are going to have incredibly thin rosters so the knicks could be an example here there could be a lot of them we don't we don't know who's going to get all these free agents but they're they're going to be playing time spots for guys who are willing to take a little bit less i see tolliver as somebody at age 30 who's going to be willing to do that going through the more fringy guys to me the most intellectually interesting is is Carmelo I don't think he's gonna have another spot but the guy that I think is the most likely to contribute next season is Waldang I still really like Waldang and he showed some signs in Minnesota and if you're not asking him to do too much you're not asking him to work to to work too hard you know not gonna play him 35 minutes a game anymore I think he can help a team Ryan Anderson has a small non-guarantee out of his over 20 million dollars never leave money on the table kids yeah never 15.6 million is guaranteed but you could potentially see him getting stretched to help get uh miami out of their luxury tax issues maybe that wouldn't happen until later you know they would have until august 31st to do it and still have
have it count on the well, 1920 cap. It, it would, except that there's a problem. I just wrote a, a stretch provision preview for the athletic. I think it'll probably come out on Monday or Tuesday, but there are a few of these players, and Ryan Anderson is a really good example of this, where normally that's what would happen, but because their contract is partially guaranteed, it pushes up the timeline a little bit, and that could oh, be Oh, yeah, yeah. When is his guarantee date? Thanks for, for noting that. His guarantee date is July 10th. Ah, all right. So so you'd imagine then, you know, I mean, unless Miami just like can't get anything done at all, uh, that he could get stressed. So, so he could be available. I think he he's only 31 and obviously struggled a lot last year, struggled after that ankle injury two years ago, but was good before that. And I mean, he really got like eight games in Phoenix's rotation before they just decided to go young. And they, I, I mean, if he played like more than like 15 minutes or something in Miami, I'd be surprised. So, uh, and then the, the other two we'll just mention briefly a pair of 22 year olds, the Suns 2016 draft, Boulevard of Broken Dreams, Marquise Chris and Dragon Bender. Chris had some playing time in Cleveland. Maybe you could see them bringing him back uh, on a very small deal. Uh, but, you know, I didn't think he showed much there. And then Bender, again, you know, it was a struggle for him shooting the well, ball. He's only 22% from three this year after he'd shot it much better earlier. He has some passing ability, um, smart help defender, but, you know, as an on ball guy, has never really developed it into the sort of switch versatile defender that they hoped he could be and they declined his option so both those guys of course are unrestricted the restricted group is very interesting uh, i have uh moxie kleba at the top of that group as, as a rotation guy at 27 i think he's a good enough player in, in terms of what he's shown so far to be a starter but you know, it's just a question of how many minutes he can play he was up and down last year we haven't seen him in that 30 minute a game role quite yet but i mean he's one of the better blocker i think he has a top 10 block rate in the nba the ability to switch he can either roll or pop it shoots it well enough from three not like a knockdown guy but you know enough that he has to be respected out there You're really a guy who doesn't have a lot of weaknesses in his game maybe strength post defense a little bit if you're playing him at center uh but he's got a lot of versatility good fit with the some of the guys that they have there now uh yeah and so i yeah, really like maxi kleba i think sure. that he, he's if i were a general manager in a certain like you know it, obviously the, everything changes based on how much cap space you have i could imagine that i would be the a gm who would give him an offer sheet but the problem and what could really curtail his value is the specific circumstances with dallas because he has an extremely low cap hold dallas has the capacity to match with him with bird rights so would you save that money or tie up that money if you're completely confident that dallas is just going to match anyway it's yeah i think that's going to tamp, tamp down his market it could theoretically lead to kleba taking a shorter term contract i mean i'm i'm morally opposed to older free agents i mean he's already 27 having to go through restricted free agency but them's the breaks yeah i could see a team that's younger and has space he would be a big target for me as a restricted free agent now he he is a little older too at at 27 so the idea of having him build with your group necessarily but i think because he's so versatile he would be a really nice fit now you would imagine dallas is going to match but you also and that they will try to do their other free agent business and but maybe especially if they don't get anyone this year then i think an offer sheet to him might be more successful because they would be trying to roll the space over to future years and they might not want him on the books at such a big number but i mean if you look at some of the teams that could use him that can afford to wait that aren't going to be in the mix for the top tier free agents bulls about 15 million in space i think he'd be a very nice fit there you know teams teams that really need to get better defensively atlanta has 41 million in space that's probably not going to be burning a hole in travis 
length pocket but it's definitely you know he would be a really nice fit there either at the four or the five the type of player you might want to have next to john collins or if you're going with a more traditional center he could play the four there really shore up your defense some with his versatility sacramento is another team that i think could really use someone like him now you know he doesn't have the pedigree hasn't played that many minutes he's 27 he's restricted so certainly i'm sure we value him more than the league does but the question is just how much you know and what would dallas be willing to match for him you know i mean to me you know 10 million dollars a year easily i would i would pay for him as long as i I knew he was healthy uh but i think there's it would surprise me if he ends up getting that much you know i think it could end up you know in the seven or eight million range kind of like you know uh davis bertans type of money maybe a little premium on top of that even though i think he's a much better player i agree with you one other team i want to mention brooklyn i really like his fit there yeah they just they just can't wait though i I know that that's what i think is the problem for them it would be more if they strike out and just just have it there then then you can go after somebody like him and i would be very interested intellectually i don't see them doing this at all in a in a kleba jaron jackson front court and memphis then you could go a little bit more avant-garde offensively and i think defensively that group would be really really fun and they still need a lot of work you know depending on what what happens with connelly and Darrell wright and a few other things but i i that's the type of move i would consider making even though i think their timeline is further out because the opportunity cost for memphis isn't that high well uh, other than the tax i mean and well, they i think say, i think they might yeah. i think they'll be able to avoid it personally yeah well i mean but then it wouldn't be a big enough offer i think to get them out of dallas's clutches right even if they waive bradley uh you know i'm looking at them having only about 11 million dollars in room under the tax and they have to fill out their roster and have some maneuvering room that, and that doesn't include necessarily that includes Dalen wright's cap hold but you know and he probably will fall right around that range you know in the seven or eight million a year range but it's uh it, it would be tough for them to to fit him in um a couple other guys i, I agree he would be a the versatility of that front court would be great and that's why i really like him because he could play four or five you know he could be even if he's not going to start kleba can be your backup four and your backup five and be a quality player and you kind of kill two birds with one stone there bobby portis at 24 will be a restricted free agent famously turned down a 50 million dollar offer from the bulls i mean he does get points and rebounds he shoots the ball a lot very limited defensively you know he'll run the floor but too slow laterally can't protect the rim doesn't really have a position at either the four or the five so you know another kind of backup microwave type of score you know a, a guy i see in the four to seven million type of range uh personally you know could be he could be a guy who might be overvalued by the league compared to what we think of him trey lyles fell out of the rotation completely in denver had a much better year last year did not shoot the three ball well this year seems like he probably wouldn't get a qualifying offer from denver i could see him going into the unrestricted market same thing with ronde hollis jefferson who was in and out of the rotation in brooklyn and finally they settled on just playing him only at the five because of his lack of shooting range as a backup five at you know six six great wingspan but uh he's got some defensive ability i think the ship has probably sailed at 24 on him becoming an adequate three-point shooter that just hasn't developed as part of his game um and i'm not sure that the nets would want to give him a qualifying offer just in fear that he might take it and uh his cap hold will eat into their cap space so i i would expect that he will end up becoming unrestricted as well all right anything to talk about here before we go people can read my analysis of warriors rockets game three that's up on the athletic and that stretch provision preview will be out within the next couple days it ended up because i I went into some depth it ended up being 2000 words it's a very long piece but i really enjoyed going through some of the hypotheticals i also thought of like three other pieces i want to write because that and then keep 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 an eye on the nba cast schedule as we work through this extremely fun 
fun and exciting second round of the playoff and i gotta tell you guys something too how about you stop at a railroad crossing when you're driving your car the number of collisions involving a train at a railway crossing is actually down 83 percent from its peak in the 1970s so we are a lot smarter but there's still more than 2,000 incidents a year of vehicle train collisions the gates come down when they do for a reason so when you see those gates make sure that you stop because trains can't 